in case you did not know, I am a very big old country music fan. Uh, back in 1990, Ricky Van Shelton had a number one country hit called Life's Little Ups and Downs. It's a song about a husband and wife discovering that life doesn't always go exactly as they plan. And each time something doesn't work out as they planned, they continue to press on, happily married, realizing that it's not the end of the world. Well, as I think about the world we live in today, I want to remind all of us that life will always be filled with ups and downs. That is until Christ returns. But life will go on. Now, I know that in 2020, it seems as if everything that has happened is more than a little up and down. But it may be that we've also simply perceived things as maybe even being worse than what they really are. Today, we continue in our series on First and Second Thessalonians, and we see that Paul is, a, is addressing a people who understood things not going as they had planned. But such disruptions to the plan were not an excuse to stop their pursuit of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a little bit more background on the people of Thessalonica as we prepare to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 today. So if you want to turn there, you can already. First, let me start with a reminder of the fact that these were a very diverse group of people with both Jews and Gentiles. Paul was a master of connecting with different people. Remember that it was Paul who said, I've become all things to all people in hopes that I might reach some. I guess you could say that he was somewhat of a chameleon when it came to reaching people. But reaching Jews with the message of Christ was very different from reaching Gentiles. With Jews, he could simply point back to the Old Testament to the prophets and to the law. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He was the prophesied Messiah. But for Gentiles, they, they came from a completely different belief system. They were somewhat religious, but the religion consisted primarily of Greek myths about multiple gods who nominally called people to be good. In their case, they wouldn't have seen their sin as detrimental to themselves or to society. Their sin was nothing more than pleasurable. Therefore, there would have been minimal guilt associated with their sin. So how would Paul reach out to them? As we look at the entirety of Paul's ministry to them, we see that he used incredible reason and the promise of something unheard of in that day. Sure, the Greeks had talked to their gods, but there was no real expectation that these mythological beings would ever come back for them. But Jesus said that he would. And many of the Gentiles did believe in Thessalonica, but you would have to imagine that for a lot of them, it was a very fragile faith. What I mean by them having a fragile faith is, I think it's very similar to what we see today. You have people who come to believe in Christ for various reasons. Some just realize that there is ugliness associated with their sin. Some long for fellowship with another group of people, specifically the body of Christ. Some are just looking for a power that is bigger than themselves. Still others believe simply from a logical perspective because it just makes sense to them. 
But what happens so often is that things don't work out the way that we planned, the way we expect, and the result is that our faith feels useless. What good is it to follow God if I still got to go through all of these crazy things? And unfortunately, many people will walk away from their faith. Well, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 reads today, we see that Paul was concerned for this new, this fragile church. He's tried multiple times to come to them, to check on them, but he's had to settle for sin in Timothy. And this is what it says beginning in verse 1. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we are destined for such troubles. Even while we were there with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as you well know. That is why when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. So he sends Timothy, not for the sake of checking on them, to tattle on them, so much as he sends, them, sends him to encourage them. And as he encouraged them, Paul already had a pretty good idea of what kind of trials these people were facing. Remember that some of the less noble Jews from Thessalonica had followed Paul to Berea solely for the purpose of shutting down Paul as he was proclaiming the gospel message. And that means that these people in Thessalonica, the faithful Jews who were now seeking Christ, they were likely being opposed by other Jews even at home. But Paul had warned them to expect such difficulty, so it shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. But it's in verse 5 that I read to you there where we see the heart of Paul really being revealed. It is the true purpose of his letter. He says, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. Now, I don't know about you, but that phrase just seems out of place for me. Paul says... I was afraid. We're talking about the guy who would spend countless nights in prison, who would speak boldly to crowds, knowing that he would likely be flogged and attacked afterwards. He would be shipwrecked due to a violent storm and would be bitten by a poisonous snake. Yet today, he says, I was afraid. Notice that he's not scared about his own personal well-being. He is scared for the believers in Thessalonica. He knows that they have had a tough journey and it would be easy for them to just give up. But he knows that if they did that, they would be settling for defeat. Paul's fear for them really reveals how much he loves them. He has invested in them. He has developed strong relationships with them. And the last thing he would ever want is for the people that he loves to turn their back on God, to somehow be defeated. Perhaps this is not all that different from a parent's relationship to their child. 
You could certainly say that these were Paul's children in the faith. In fact, he would later refer to Timothy as his true son in the faith because he was so instrumental in his own spiritual growth. So I would imagine that he likely perceived the church in Thessalonica in a similar fashion. In fact, let me get a couple of y'all to help me demonstrate this principle for you. Can I get Troy and Jonathan to come up and they're going to just do a little skit to demonstrate uh, this connection. Yeah, you're right about that. My bottom is going to be sore after this ride. right about that. Matter of fact, you should look back there and make sure nobody's following us. How far back? Oh, oh he's no threat. But matter of fact, where's your hat at, Troy? What kind of cowboy are you anyway? Anyway, look back there again and see where that guy's at. See how far back he is. How far back is he? Ah, uh, he's still no threat. We'll be all right. Keep on going. Absolutely, that makes sense to me. Why don't you go ahead and take a look back there and see how far back that guy is. Well, how far back? Oh, man, Troy, you're going to do something, brother. Shoot him. You're going to have to shoot him. What do you mean? Why can't you shoot him? You got to do it. Why can't you? <laughs> All right, so the idea here is that Paul has known the people from Thessalonica since they were this big. He had invested in them and he wanted them to thrive. So like a parent of a grown-up child, he's still worried over their spiritual well-being. He hoped that he had given them the tools that they needed for success, but it didn't change the fact that he would always be concerned for them. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, that besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. He loved them just to ignore their well-being. We are the people who are the people that you love and pray for constantly? Maybe for you, it is your children. Maybe it's those individuals that you have invested in since they were this big. Who are the people that you want to check on constantly? Maybe the better question is, who are the people that you need to check on? 
and not just ask them how they're physically doing, but where are they spiritually? Don't wait. We don't know that we'll have other opportunities, so take advantage of the opportunity that you have. That's why the Apostle Paul, he, had, he wanted so much to go back to Thessalonica to visit, and he kept putting it off because each time something else happened and he wasn't able to go. So eventually he just says, you know what, I can't wait. I got to go. You know what, I can't go. Timothy, I need you to go for me. So what he does is he makes it a priority because he loves them that much because he is afraid for them. Of course, as parents, we always want the most for our children. We want them to be blessed. We want them to do well, and we want them to live up to a standard that is even higher than where we have been. Well, that's where Paul was as he hungered for more for his church. In fact, look at verses 9 and 10 of our passage this morning. How we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again, to fill the gaps in your faith. My interpretation of what he says here is that this is all I need. We could die right now, and we will know that we have done our part with you. And we're good with that. But as long as we're here, we're going to pray for you, and we really want to come see you. But not just for old time's sake. It's not just so we can reminisce and remember the good old days when we got to spend time together. We want to see you so that we can fill the gaps in your faith. In other words, I know that we covered the foundational principles with you. I just want to help you cross the T's and dot the I's. I want to make sure you have everything God has to offer you. Within this sentiment, we see that Paul is very much aware of the fact that we are all works in progress. They've started this journey well, but there's still work to be done. Remember Paul's own words in Philippians 3, verse 12 through 14, where he says, Not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He saw himself as a work in progress, and he realizes that these people are no different. So what does that look like? I remember going to my last church. It was the first time I had ever been a senior or solo pastor, so I certainly didn't have all the answers. In fact, I've now been doing this for about 16 years, and I still don't have all of the answers. But I remember receiving a notebook from the secretary that had been put together by the previous pastor. He had listed all these things that I needed to be aware of. It included information regarding local holidays, references to people like the fact that we had a convicted sex offender in the church. So these were important things. And the fact that the attendance, the attendance numbers traditionally dipped significantly over the month of August. Well, I had probably been there for about six months when I received a random phone call late one night. 
It was Pastor Dean, and he was calling because he said he was riding down the road, and suddenly he remembered something that he forgot to put in the notebook. I've been there for six months, so I probably already knew most of what he was sharing, but he said, I just wanted to make sure that you were aware of this. And I kind of picture Paul here with the church of Thessalonica, and as they are in this process of spiritual growth, occasionally Paul thinks, well, you know, I wonder if I told him about this. You know, I wonder if they know about this. And he wants so much to be able to share with them to make sure that they have all the pieces that they need to succeed. Remember that Timothy was just returning from a visit to the church of Thessalonica. So he's likely given a report to Paul, which enables Paul to get pretty specific in his letter to them that we're reading from today. Can you picture Paul and Timothy's conversation when Timothy got back from his visit? Well, Paul, they're, they're all still seeking the Lord, but they're a long way from where they really need to be. In fact, there are even some who are participating in sexual immorality within the church. I, I picture Paul thinking, no, they can't do that. That doesn't fit with what it means to be a child of God. Don't they know that God has saved them so they don't have to continue in those things? And then suddenly it hits in Paul's mind. I don't know if we actually talked about that. Before we get into Paul's response, I want to take a moment and talk to two groups of people here this morning. First, for those who would consider yourselves works in progress, let me challenge you to never become satisfied with where you are spiritually. God understands that you didn't develop your sinful practices overnight, and it may take time to leave those practices behind. But I want to encourage you today, and this is a part of Paul's vision for the people in Thessalonica, you can leave the sinful past behind. It does not have to be something that dominates your life for the rest of your life. It does not have to identify who you are. You are made new in Christ Jesus. The sin does not have to come along for the ride. Just keep pressing on toward that end. But I also want to address those of us who would consider ourselves further along in this process. Sometimes we are so quick to look upon others who may be newer to this process almost with judgment. Well, they're still living in their sin. Maybe we look at them and we think, well, they're probably not even Christians. But maybe we need to remember the process that we have been through to get where we are today. Instead of judging other people, pray for them. Pour into them. Help them to become more like Christ. All right, now let's talk about Paul's response to the people of Thessalonica. He clearly is not content with leaving them in their sin. So instead he points, he paints with broad strokes addressing their sin. He doesn't call anyone by name. He doesn't call out just one particular sin. But instead he calls out a few that seem to cover a wide range of things, like sexual immorality. His focus is not on the sin, though, but it's on the solution. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 3 through 8. God's will is for you to be holy, 
So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow, bro a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So the answer to the problem of sexual sin is holiness. Now, here's the thing. We could actually go beyond that and say the answer to the problem of personal integrity is holiness. The answer to the problem of gossiping is holiness. Every problem of sin that we can identify, the answer will always be holiness. By the way, it's the answer to all of the issues that we struggle. Which all that sounds nice, but how can a man or a woman live a holy life? I mean, I'm not God, so you can't expect me to really be holy, can you? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you can be completely transformed until you do reflect the holiness of God in all that you say and do. Now, I want to give you three things that can help you in this process of transformation today. They're all uh, attached to Scripture and incredibly important to the believer. If you truly want to walk in holiness, this must begin with what I'll define as pure worship King David was one who became incredibly dependent upon his time of worship. He had many battles that were going on around him and would accomplish much, but the one thing that he needed most was intimacy with God. Whether you realize it or not, you are no different than King David. You may not have hundreds and thousands of people who are waiting for you to tell them what to do, but you have a life to live, but in the midst of it, no matter what you have going on, you need intimacy with God. So David says in Psalm 27, verse 4, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. His greatest desire is to be in the presence of the Lord and to be able to meditate on his beauty that should be our desire as well. And of course, we develop this intimacy with God during times of worship like a service like this, as well as in our personal times of prayer and scripture reading. So I challenge you to make this a part of your everyday life. Pure worship that is between you and him where you are genuinely seeking him above everything else. The second thing that we need in order to experience holiness is to serve the Lord in purity. As we draw near to God, you will find it much easier to serve him in purity. Mark 9 and 10 record a series of interactions between Jesus and others where Jesus addresses several components of what should be a part of serving the Lord in purity. For the sake of time, we're not going to read Mark 9 and 10 today, but I'll encourage you to go back and read it, but I will identify a few of the things he talks about. The first one is humility. Jesus tells them not to compete to be number one. It's 
always a temptation to compare to other people. Envy and rivalry can be very dangerous things. Jesus says if you're going to compete, it should be to see who gets the last place, not the first. If anyone wants to be first, they must be last. Leaders are called to humble service. The second thing that he identifies is love. It says then in verse 36 and 37 of chapter, uh, Mark chapter 9, Then he put a little child among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. Love and welcome everyone, even those who are unable to do anything for you. You know, sometimes we get caught up in loving on the people that are going to bless us back, that are going to find some way to love us in return, when in reality, God calls us to love our enemies to love those who are not like us, to love those who perhaps we wouldn't necessarily choose to hang out with except for the fact that they are made in the image of God. We need to be willing to love as Jesus loved. The third thing that we see is discipline. We sometimes tolerate sin in our own lives, but we are intolerant toward other people's sin. Jesus teaches us to be tolerant toward others, but intolerant about sin in our lives and even in the lives of others. You can be tolerant about the fact that, you know what, people see things different than I do. It's okay, but we should never be okay with the presence of sin in an individual's life. Of course, Jesus is not just speaking about literally maiming oneself. Actually, if you look at the passage, he talks about if your hand is going to cause you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot's going to cause you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye is going to cause you to stumble, pluck it out. His purpose through all of that is not to identify you should abuse yourself, but it is to identify specific areas that sometimes the body of Christ will stumble in. The hand represents the things that we do. The feet represents the places that we go. The eye represents the things that we look at, we choose to engage with. And God is saying that if any of those things should cause you to stumble, you'd be better off without them. Sometimes we suffer and we have to deal with things that happen and we think, God, why would you allow allow this to happen? But maybe sometimes it's because God knows that if we have that hand, it's probably going to cause us to stumble. So maybe it'd just be better to cut it off. Now, that's a hard principle to take here, but really what God's saying is you need to be disciplined with what you have. The last one is peace. Jesus tells them not to argue, but to be at peace. It's in John all right, I'm sorry, it's in Mark chapter 10. Jesus longed for his disciples to get along with one another, to stop arguing and to be at peace with each other. Later, he would pray that they would be one in order that the rest of the world would believe they needed to have peace amongst themselves. The last thing that I want us to see today is that we need to do more than talk about holiness. We talk about holiness as a Wesleyan church quite a bit, We talk about the term holiness. We need to do more than talk about it. We need to be powerfully devoted to it. What does that mean? Consider the words of Leviticus 11, verse 44 through 45. It says, for I am the Lord, your God. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. So do not defile yourselves with any of these small animals that scurry along the ground. For I, the Lord, am the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, 
you must be holy because I am holy. Forget about the animals that scurry along the ground. That was specific to an incident, basically helping them to understand what clean animals were and unclean animals. That's what this is a reference to. But I want you to catch that last statement in Leviticus 11.45. Therefore, you must be holy because I am holy. This is a huge calling for those who are in the body of Christ. Because the truth is, that feels like something that is beyond my reach. How can I truly be holy? I know the things that I've done in my life. I know where I've allowed sin to take place. And it's very easy for me to recognize how unholy I have been. Yet here, God is calling us to be holy. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't happen simply by choice. There are different aspects of holiness, and there is a choice element that is associated with it. The term holiness, sometimes we, we muddy the words, uh, they're, they're religious words, and we muddy them sometimes. The term sanctification is sometimes used to identify aspects of holiness. In the Wesleyan Church, we believe in multiple types of sanctification or holiness. The first is something called initial sanctification. This is the idea that the very moment that you surrender your life to Christ, you make the choice you have chosen to respond to his grace and his goodness. You have confessed your sins. He has forgiven you, and he makes you holy in that moment. From that very moment, you have been forgiven. Your sin no longer keeps you from getting into heaven. You are now a child of God. You are a part of the family of God. You have been initially sanctified. The problem is this. When I said that prayer many years ago, I definitely was not a finished product. In fact, the truth is, I'm still not a finished product. The second part of what the Wesleyan Church teaches is called progressive sanctification. And it's this idea that I should be progressively becoming more and more sanctified, a better reflection of Christ every single day. You say, well, pastor, that was 1990 when you made that. 30 years have passed. Shouldn't you be further along than you are today? And I would say, yes, I do feel like I should have been. But here's what I want you to catch. Progressive sanctification requires the determination that I will never, ever be content with staying where I'm at. Progress is a part of being progressive, moving toward the goal instead of being content with where I'm at, saying I've gone far enough, I'm as far as anybody else. No, my goal is to become a perfect reflection of Jesus Christ. And until I reach that point, I am not where I need to be. I want holiness to be something that grows inside of me so that every single day I can go to bed at night thinking I lived more Christ-like today than I did the day before. The third part of the Wesleyan view of sanctification and holiness is called entire sanctification. It is the idea that there will come a day where an individual can completely leave sin behind where they can truly be holy as he is holy. So I, I don't know if I'll be able to do that. That just seems like something that is beyond my capability. And I will just tell you, first of all, that um, I know I'm still a long way from that. But 
every day I want to strive to experience that. I said, well, Pastor, you can't expect someone to live without sin entirely. I wonder, just think, I don't want you to verbally answer, but I want you to think for a minute. Imagine that you really focused over the next 30 seconds. Really just focus on God and his love and his greatness, maybe even thought back to a scripture. Do you think you could go the next 30 seconds without sin being a problem in your life? No sin entering for the next 30 seconds, you just fixing your eyes on Christ. My guess is that most of us would say, well, yeah, I guess I could probably do that. Well, let's take it out further. If you could do that for the next 30 seconds, do you think you could do that for the next 60 seconds? What about for the next five minutes? Well, if you can do it that long, if you truly fix your eyes on Jesus, you can do it for the rest of your life. I believe wholeheartedly that when God called his people to be holy just as he is holy, he was not calling us to something that is impossible, but he called us to something that is completely possible through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. I am not good enough to do this on my own, but I believe that through the presence of the Holy Spirit, which we just, we've been focusing on the Holy Spirit over the last couple months, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we can walk in holiness as God has called us. I'm going to ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute. Perhaps as I've spent time in the Word this morning, as we've spent time talking about holiness, you've been reminded of the fact that there is still sin that dominates your life. And maybe today you need to take a moment and confess and to once again surrender saying, God, I need your help because I have not done well enough. I'm going to pray, and I want to pray specifically for individuals. If you would say, Pastor, that's me, and I want so much to be holy just as God is holy, and I know that I can't do it on my own, so I need God to intervene for me. If that's you, would you just raise your hand real quick? Thank you, and put them back down. Thank you. Father, as we come before you, you saw the many hands that were raised those who are in the body of Christ, who there is no doubt that they have already responded to your grace and they have the forgiveness of sins. Father, I pray right now that you would empower them to now walk in a way that reflects you and your presence in us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be devoted, fully devoted to you above everything else. Father, I pray that you would enable us to be holy just as you are holy. As we come before you today, Lord, I pray that where we have allowed sin to come in, whether it be some form of sexual sin, whether it be an issue of integrity or an issue of pride, whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that right now you would forgive the sins that we have committed. And that from this moment forward, we would walk as if we are new creations in you. Make us holy vessels. Father, I pray today that when trouble comes our way, when we face challenges, that it would not cause us to abandon our faith, but rather it would cause us to lean into our faith, 
that we would find more comfort and strength from you than we ever could from ourselves. Father, I pray today that you would make us so wholly dependent upon you that when challenges come our way, we would be ready to stand strong because you are the strength that we find. Thank you again for your grace. Thank you for each individual who raised their hands today. And I pray that you would continue to transform them into the vessels that you created them to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this time, we're going to participate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We do not get the opportunity to do this every week, but we do get the opportunity to do this uh, at least once a month. At least that's our goal. Uh, as we do so today, um, I have several of our young people who are going to help us, young people and Jonathan, excuse me, um, who are going to help us with this. And as we do, uh, I want you to know that one of the things as a church, this is an open uh, communion, which means that individuals are all welcome to participate. If you are part of the body of Christ, you are welcomed in to participate. You don't have to be a member of this church. Uh, rather, you are already a part of the church of Jesus Christ. So uh, it is open to each one. Uh, as we do this, the elements we use are different from what we normally would have used. Uh, I will tell you that um, we're about out of this stock, so we may have to go back to the way things used to be next time. We'll see how. I know some of y'all are excited because it's a little different. These are little wafers. They're, they look like styrofoam. They tech, the texture is similar to styrofoam, but it's not. Uh, it is a wafer, uh, and it is edible. So uh, what I will encourage everyone to do in just a moment is to uh, come up and receive the elements, and then once everyone has the elements, take it back to your seats. Uh, once everyone has the elements, then we will all partake of those elements together at the same time. Uh, this is a ritual that Jesus Christ instituted, but he didn't institute it as a ritual. The goal was not necessarily to say, well, this is what you should do in a church service. Jesus, as he met with his disciples on the last night that he was with them, Jesus took bread and he took wine, two elements that would have been used at just about every meal. And as he took those elements, he said, this bread means something more than just bread. He said, this bread represents my body that is broken for you. And every time you eat this, I want you to remember my body being broken for you. Remember, they would eat this at every meal. So that means I want you to remember constantly that I was willing to lay down my body for you. He said, this wine, which again was used at every meal, this wine represents my blood that is shed for you. The book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this means something, that, that Jesus' blood would be shed. It was the, literally the payment for our sin. He said, I don't want you to forget, so every time you eat, Every time you drink, I want you to remember what I did for you. We're going to do this in this service right now, but I want to challenge you as a church to constantly be aware of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. Not just in here. This is a good time to remember, but you know what? You got lunch today? That's a good time to remember too. In fact, that was Jesus' point. When you sit down for dinner tonight, that's a good time to remember. You, you know what this means? Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for you. This is an opportunity for us to consider the fact that God loves you more than life itself. 
He was willing to let his body be broken and his blood be shed just for you. Now, what does that mean for you? I know some of y'all, you're thinking, all right, let's go ahead and do communion. Pastor, stop talking, but listen. What does his sacrifice mean to you? I am a new creation. What we've been talking about today, I am not the same person that I was. I am a work in progress, but I am not the same person that I was before. And it's not because I decided I was going to be good. It is because Jesus Christ laid down his life and he gave me the opportunity to leave the past behind. So I can now go forward knowing that I have the promise of eternal life. And I don't even have to wait until then to receive his blessing. He poured out his spirit on me now. But it begins with him being willing to go to the cross to be the sacrifice for my sins. I hope you understand that today as we participate in these elements. I'm going to pray, and then as I do, I'm going to ask these uh, young people to come, and they're going to uh, take the trays, and we're going to distribute it as you all come forward. Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to worship you, to lift up your name, to celebrate your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. I pray today that as we participate in this remembrance, remembering what you have done, I pray that you would help us to do so, realizing the impact of your sacrifice. Thank you for the life that we have now been promised. Help us to walk every day in celebration of that life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.